that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment, of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka. When's the last time you said Raka? You've never said, well, we're, we're, we don't have to worry about this person. <laughs> so, Raka, I love that. <laughs> this is why we need newer translations. <laughs> we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But Whoever says Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The reason, just so you know, another purpose of this, of this series is to help you uh, gain a, an ability to interpret Scripture on your own. You know, when they, when they include a word that is from the original language, they don't translate it. It's usually because there's no English word that quite matches it. And so it forces you to use a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, and look it up. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into what that means. Says, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him. Least your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown in the prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. I'm going to read it again from an newer translation, more of a paraphrase, uh, called the message. It says, you're familiar, again, Jesus is speaking, you're familiar with the command of the, to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly calling a brother idiot, and you might, and you just might find yourself handed into court, hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. Oh, let's just, let's, let's just cling to the promises of Scripture. Oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Really? Have you read it? The simple moral fact is that words kill. Mind you of another Scripture? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and, about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or, or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, <clears throat> maybe in jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. It's a little easier to understand translation. So in the previous verses, as we've been leading up, and if, if, if you're here for the first time, if you missed a few, and, and we've been jumping around because I've been gone a lot, but you can go back and listen to all these sermons online for free. So in the previous verses, Jesus explained that He did not come to annul 
or to erase or to make void the Old, the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi is still fully intact and applicable to Christians. All right? You just need to know how to live that. I, I went into depth on how to do that in previous messages. He came to fulfill it. He also said, and this is just previously, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's just personally apply that scripture to our life. Why don't you repeat after me? Unless my righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, I will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's a heavy statement. That's a heavy statement. Because the Pharisees, they would count how many steps they would take on Saturday so that they wouldn't break the law. Thou shalt not... uh, Thou shalt keep my Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath and make it holy. And so they figured out, well, how, it don't work on the Sabbath, right? And so they decided how many steps that meant. And they, 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 they were real strict. They were really strict. They made sure they didn't eat anything that was forbidden. So they were real strict. But Jesus said, your righteousness must succeed. Christ followers need a different kind of righteousness altogether, though. We went into this in depth last week, or last time I taught. Love and obedience. It's, it's righteousness based on love, which is right relationship. Righteousness means being in right standing with God, being in right relationship with God. And that's, uh, that comes out of love and obedience, both of them knit together. Not just a more intense version of the Pharisees' righteousness, which was legal compliance, legalistic compliance, outward compliance. So when it says your righteousness must succeed, he's not saying it has to be more of the same. He's saying it has to be of a different kind. Think about that for a while. Right? He's not saying you have to be more strict. You have to say you have to do it a whole different way. You have to understand it the way it was actually meant. And Jesus gives six examples. He says that statement, and then he gives six examples. And we're going to be talking through those six examples. Today we're just going to talk to the first example of how our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Anger. And next time I talk, we're going to talk about adultery and lust. Ready for that? Uh, then we're going to talk about divorce and oaths and revenge and loving your enemies. Jesus does not give us a complete theology or ethic for each of these. What do I mean by that? These are examples to make his point. The example is not the whole sermon. Right? It's just an example. So when you refer to an example, it doesn't mean he's going to cover everything that applies to that example. He's just pulling some examples out to make the point of how the righteousness of the kingdom has to exceed this legalistic outward righteousness that the Pharisees were practicing. And so you can't just take one statement of what Jesus said and, this is, and think that's what, all, that's what the Bible teaches on anger or divorce. Right? Uh, that doesn't work. He, he's just using these as an example. He's sharing examples of how his kingdom righteousness. I already said that. <clears throat> the practical outworking, this is from a commentator named France. The practical outworking is set in explicit contrast with the ethical rules previously accepted. Okay, so the practical outworking of our righteousness exceeding the Pharisees, exceeding legalistic outward behavior, he's giving us practical ways to apply that. And they're, they're explicitly contrast the ethical rules previously accepted. In other words, what Jesus is is talking about is things that are really in contrast with what the people were used to. It's funny, I have to 
I have to explain the commentary. <laughs> it is in each case, this is the point, each case more demanding. Say more demanding. More far more far reaching in its application, more at variance with the ethic of man without God. It concerns a man's or a woman's it's not gender specific motive and attitudes more than his literal conformity to the rules. In this sense it is radical. And so what's at variance or what what the difference is between what Jesus is communicating and the culture of his kingdom and what it means to be a Christ follower is he's contrasting it. It's at variance with people who are living without God. The ethic and ethic is this your, your way of operating, how you make choices, how you behave, how you think, how you feel and why you think and feel those ways and why you act that ways. And so the ethic is that is, he's contrasting it with the pharisaical religious uh, people's um, uh, outward uh, way of, 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 of Think seemingly being righteous, but really violating, and worldliness, people who just didn't even bother with the religious things. He's contrasting them both. Um, <clears throat> and the first example that he gives that we're going to talk about is murder and anger. And the verses, is, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause uh, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. To tell you the truth, one of the reasons I've wanted to teach on the Sermon on the Mount is to give me an opportunity to speak about anger. All right? Um, <clears throat> I just think it's so critical. It's one of the... Anger is one of, if not... I personally, after 25 years more than 25 years of ministry, I believe that anger is the underlying issue under almost every sin. Every emotional, spiritual, and many physical problems in people's lives is unresolved anger. And most people are completely clueless. They're dealing with the symptoms and they never get to the cause. It's unresolved anger. It causes so many, so many... uh, 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 things. So Jesus is referring to the sixth commandment, of course. Thou shalt not kill. And, 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 and the commandment is really no murder. There's really two words, right? <laughs> no murder. It's real clear. No murder. So he's referring to this very well known and acknowledged uh, command of God. But he, he, he responds to it differently than what they're used to. It's, this is a different kind of sermon. Because he says, I say to you, you've heard this said, but I say to you. And it's a radically different way of teaching than, than the people were used to. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the response from the crowd is, wow, this guy is different. He speaks with authority. Because he, he, he is the Word. Right? I say to you, is, uh, um, uh, uh, normal describes what and use that. And the em- emphatic, repeated use of I say to you is striking. It's rightly regarded as a mark of Jesus' assumption of an authority that overriding that of the scribes. Right? It, it communicates to the people listening that what he's saying, he's, he's, he's giving the bottom line. This is what it really means. Because Jesus is the Word. Now, I don't know if you understand this, but when Moses got those words from God, 
God was communicating them through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the Word of God. Alright? It's not like God the Father gave the Ten Commandments and Jesus came along to save us from the Ten Commandments. Alright? Jesus knows what those commandments are. He spoke them. And He's coming and He's giving us He's giving us the, the, the definition. This is what it really means. Um, Jesus is not offering a new opinion in the debate about what this means. He's making a definitive declaration of the will of God because He has the authority to do that. You know, they were debating, what does this really mean? See, even today, the things that we debate, we think, well, what, what does the Bible really mean? And some people have, well, this Bible verse means this, and this, well, I think it means this, and I think it means this. You know, and that's, that's okay. That's what we're supposed to do. I think things are, but Jesus comes along and says, this is what it means. And we have to receive it because uh, He's Jesus. But it demands that response. The people who were listening to Jesus, when He said these things, they were forced into this response. Who is this guy? Who does Jesus think He is? Because all the other scribes, and everybody's been teaching this stuff for hundreds of years. And this young whippersnapper, he's only in his 30s, stands up and says, you've heard it taught like this, but I'm telling you, this is the way it is. And we need to understand that the overriding purpose of the book of Matthew is the presentation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And if you read this, it should have the same response in you. And if it doesn't, I question whether or not you're really getting it. Because Jesus is making demands that are above and beyond any rational man has the right to make. Because He's not just man. He's Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's God the Son. He is the Word of God. He is able to give us the true understanding of God's Word. <clears throat> so that, that it ties in all the way through Matthew, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. We must keep in mind the ultimate purpose of this is an understanding of who Jesus is. How, that, how, how these details fit in with the primary thesis or primary subject matter of the book helps us understand each individual part. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, because part of this, again, I'm helping you understand the Bible. <laughs> and so you can understand and, 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 and read and get more out of it yourself, not just listen to sermons. Uh, although I like you listening to sermons. It's, it's a good thing. <laughs> Jesus extends the law against murder. Let's get into the details. From the act to the motivation. The continued validity of the sixth commandment is assumed. All right? But the legalistic interpretation which restricts its application to the literal act alone is rejected. And you kind of chuckle because this one's obvious. All right? and Jesus said, <clears throat> you've heard it said don't murder, but I say don't even hate, uh, don't be angry. In no way does that imply that the original commandment is not valid. So as long as I don't hate him, I can kill him. <laughs> I love you, brother. <laughs> All right, that's ridiculous, right? But that's what exactly the error people are making in a lot people today, people in Kalamazoo, <clears throat> some people even in church, not this church, of course. They think, oh, because Jesus came along, because there's grace, it's okay for me to do this sin and that sin. Sorry? No, no. Should we sin that grace abound? Certainly not! Right? That's not... I mean, it's easy with murder. 
Well, we, we play that little slippery rule when the sins are a little more uh, close to our heart. This teaching, <clears throat> this teaches us how Jesus handles the Sixth Commandment, teaches us how to understand Old Testament laws. It's a perfect example. How do you understand Old Testament? Look and read and see how Jesus interpreted Old Testament laws, how he applied it. More importantly, it teaches us about what God is really concerned with. It reveals God's character. So listen to this. I want, you've got to get the understanding of what the Scripture is really intended for. It's not just, you know, the New Testament is not a new rule book to replace the old uh, rule book. It's all, the whole, from Genesis to Revelation, is meant to reveal the nature and character of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that we can get in relationship. And so it's, it's knowing um, the character. It reveals who God is, and that gives us a, an understanding of how we are to live in relationship with that person called God, called our Father, called Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So the why is always who Jesus is or who God is. It's the nature of God. You don't, don't, you don't not sin just because it's wrong. You avoid sin because it's, a, it's contrary to God's nature and you love God. You know, if, if I wanted to hang out with Dan, and Dan's a nice guy. Have you never hung out with Dan? I'm sorry. You, you need to hang out with Dan. You, you, he's fun to be around. How many can say amen to that? Amen. All right. But I wouldn't do things that were contrary to Dan's nature. I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak bad of his wife and children in his presence, would I? Because then Dan would not, you know, Dan would punch me. Um, I'd forgive you. He'd forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> it would be uncomfortable to it be in this. It would be uncomfortable because Dan loves his family. I'd leave. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to hang out with him because he'd leave. And so we do the same thing with God. We, we act in ways that, are, that God loves because that means... We like being with God. And if we act in ways that are contrary to God's nature, then we feel uncomfortable in God's presence. All right? doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It means that we're acting contrary. And Jesus reveals what God's nature is. The Bible reveals what God's nature is. Okay, I'm kind of uh, meandering. Um, <clears throat> murder and anger is the first example. God is concerned with our inward motivation, the anger, the hurt, the fear, the ungodly beliefs, whatever it may be, that motivation of the heart, as much as he is with the outward um, circumstances or the outward actions. That's what Jesus is saying. And so you can look at all of the Old Testament examples, and some of them are really obscure. I'm reading through the Old Testament. Every time I read through I was like, why well, some of this stuff I just don't get? But we, what, yo, what would be the inner motivation? Because the outward application may not fit in our culture. But he's really interested in the inward motivation. Why am I saying that? Because that's what Jesus uses to interpret, to give us an understanding of what the Sixth Commandment means. Boom. Get it? Alright. We should not even become angry enough to murder. For then we have already committed murder in our heart. The Pharisees, not having literally murdered anyone, felt righteous. I haven't killed anybody. How many times have you been talking to somebody about Jesus? Talking to somebody about heaven. I'll go to heaven. Why? Because I haven't killed anybody. Oh, really? Is that is that is that the is that the, the is that the level of heaven? You know, does it come up? Have you killed anybody? No. Okay, go on in. <laughs> really? Come on. That's the only qualification. Qualification. You haven't killed anybody. Okay, you're good. I haven't killed anybody. 
I'm Rob. Everybody stole something. <clears throat> we won't go there. <laughs> um, the Pharisees thought they were righteous. I'm right with God because I haven't killed anyone. Yet, they were angry enough with Jesus that they would soon plot his death. Even though they didn't actually nail him to the cross, they set it all up. They were, the one, they, they were just as guilty as the Romans who nailed the cross. We miss the intent or the intention of God's Word when we read His rules for living without trying to understand why He made them. We need to understand the why. All right? The rules are important. It doesn't mean the why annuls the rule. <laughs> Knowing the why enables us to live the rule righteously. So Jesus first, with this issue of anger, gives us a wrong way to respond. <clears throat> Don't be overcome with emotion and call names. Raka, you fool, or idiot, stupid. Don't respond by calling names. Jesus threatens divine judgment on anger, even expressed in everyday insults. Why did, they use, why did Jesus pick those words? Because everybody in that, his hearing probably had used those words probably within the last few days or weeks. All right? You can't use words that everybody else used and think it's okay. Jesus is saying, that is not kingdom culture. Your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of Pharisees. If you're following me, you're not going to talk that way. If you're talking that way, you're not following me. If you're not following me, you're not going to end up where I end up. Where's Jesus going to end up? Heaven. If you're following Jesus, it means changing behavior by changing our attitude. Alright? This is what Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> Jesus makes the motivation of anger equal with the act of murder. Somebody kills somebody. We all, somebody walks into a school and shoots to 18 people. Ah, and it's bad. It's a bad, bad thing. Some people live their whole life in anger, in bitterness, mean, snarling. I hate their spouse, hate their kids, hate their parents. You know what? God sees them walking around. Probably the only reason they're not doing it is because they don't have enough courage. Jesus said, no, that's not the kingdom culture. That's not... That's not dealing with, that's not following me. Jesus is not giving, again, a complete teaching on the topic of anger. He doesn't in any of it. He doesn't completely give us a theology of adultery or divorce. We're going to talk about those in upcoming weeks. Uh, <clears throat> I think I already said this. We err if we take just a few phrases from the Sermon on the Mount and think that that's what uh, the whole Bible teaches on, on one topic. It's not. He's using this as an example of the differenti differentiating our kingdom righteousness that we're called into as Christ followers from the religious pharisaical righteousness or the worldly uh, uh, form of ethics and saying we have to be different. Uh, the emotion of anger is not a sin. I'm going to talk a little bit about anger, uh, straying away from the Sermon on the Mount because I think this is so important. The emotion of anger is not a sin. Ephesians, which is the Word of God, <laughs> you know the red letters aren't more authoritative. Okay, the red letters weren't added until just shortly, a couple, what, a hundred years ago? <laughs> all right, just because Jesus said it doesn't mean it's more Scripture than, than the rest of the Scripture. It's all equal authority. Amen? Yeah. 
It's amazing how many Christians lose that. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, God says, Be angry and do not sin. Thanks for quoting scripture there. Don't let the sun go down on your, on your wrath. If I said, Be angry, is that a suggestion? What is it? English majors. Huh? It's an imperative. That's a, it means a command. Be angry. You want to see a contradiction in scripture? People that try to show contradictions in Scripture don't even know which ones to look for. <laughs> Jesus says, if you're angry, you're going to go to hell. And, and Ephesians says, be angry. It's a command. Uh, think about it for a bit. The emotion, feeling angry, is actually, not only is it not a sin, you're commanded. To, there are certain things you should be angry about. All right? Even how people treat you sometimes. The response of anger is right. It's not wrong. But he says, don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. In fact, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. And that, what he means by that is deal with it that day. Before the sun goes down. Before that day is done, resolve that anger in your life. Alright? Jesus teaches us that acting out of anger, even in ways that are culturally acceptable... Like calling someone foolish or stupid. Driving down the road, someone cuts you off. <laughs> Driving down the road, you cut somebody else off. Oops. <laughs> Driving somebody else, come and <laughs> Put that in Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, God, Jesus said that's a serious violation of God's character and risks eternal separation as a result. Feeling angry is okay. Acting out in anger is dangerous. So, so the, you need to learn how to resolve anger in appropriate ways. And, and a big key to this is that we're not God. You know, God is angry. Read the Bible. God often is angry. He never sins. Well, he can be angry and, and, and not sin and deal with uh, the consequences of sin in a righteous, healthy way because he's God. Remember the verse, vengeance is mine? That means revenge is mine. That means that uh, making right for wrongs belongs to the God. You know why? Because you can't handle it. I can't handle it. So when someone wrongs me, I can feel angry. But then I say, God, vengeance is yours. I give you the right. I give you my revenge, the revenge that is due me. And really, you know, thank you for not meeting out the vengeance upon me that, that I've caused. Does that make sense? Because he can do it with justice and we can't. So we can feel those emotions, but we can't act out in anger. Uh, Jesus gives us <clears throat> two proper ways to resolve anger. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there and go your way. Be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift. Okay, this is, a, uh, this is his first way. If you come in, you remember that there's an offense, there's broken relationship, stop your worship and go get, make the relationship right. It's interesting that this is the first reference in Jesus' ministry, first reference uh, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about a religious act. 
And that act is giving an offering. You know, in the contemporary church, we kind of hide the offering. Don't talk about money. It'll offend some people. Some people are all uptight about money. People have been abused. Jesus wasn't ashamed about talking about giving an offering. In fact, it's the first thing that he refers to on a religious level. He says, if you come with an offering you, and you got something wrong, you need to stop. <clears throat> he doesn't talk about singing and worship. He doesn't talk about reading the Bible. But he does talk about And I think this reveals a priority in the kingdom of offering. It really does. It's an example that he gives. But he says that our heart condition is more important than the money or the sacrifice. Whatever religious act you're doing, I don't care how good you sing Amazing Grace or the Revelation song or whatever Jesus Culture CD you're listening to. Okay? I don't care how excited you are about the latest, you know, worship CD. If you have anger issues that are unresolved and you have broken relationship, you've got to turn off the CD and go get right. Does that make sense? All right. A broken relationship will negate a religious act regardless of how righteous it, repair, it appears. And as I was reading this, I was struck. Wow, this first sin issue that Jesus is dealing with is like really the first sin outside of the garden. And Cain is able. And I thought, wow, it was motivated by a response to an act of worship. Cain and Abel both brought offerings, and Cain's wasn't accepted. And what did Cain do? Huh? Who did he murder? Think about that. He was so mad, he went out and killed his brother. Now, a lot of people teach, and it's a great example of how uh, the offering needs to be a blood sacrifice. That actually is taught elsewhere in the Bible. God doesn't say that anywhere about, in the Bible about Cain and Abel's offering. But Jesus says something about offerings and having hate in your heart and, and linking it to murder. So I'm saying, regardless of what everybody always talks about when they talk about Cain and Abel's offering, the real, real problem was <clears throat> is that there was something in Cain's heart, not his offering, that was not acceptable to God. And we know he was mad because he went out and killed his brother. What a perfect example. Listen, your offering is not going to be acceptable if you have hate in your heart toward someone in your life. Bottom line. He doesn't say don't make the offering. He says go make the relationship right. <clears throat> you cannot really worship God if there's unresolved anger or broken relationships in your life. The responsibility in this parable, it's like a little parable that Jesus is talking about, is for making that relationship right is put on the quote-unquote innocent victim. There are no innocent, innocent people in any relationship, right? Because <laughs> none of us are perfect. But in this parable, it's like if you go and you have this offering and you remember someone has a grudge against you, it doesn't say if you have a grudge against someone, but if someone has a grudge against you, it's your responsibility to go and make it right. Do whatever you can. Maybe they won't forgive, but you, can, you have to do whatever you can. Uh, uh, if there's a broken relationship, you must do all that you can to right that relationship. Because your relationship with God is directly affected by every other relationship. Think about that for a minute. Your relationship with God is directly affected by every other relationship in your life. You can't have these relationships over here and think they're not going to affect your relationship with God. This is what Jesus is teaching. Because if you have anger or other issues or uh, unresolved in your life, then when you come to God, those things are going to keep you tied down. And Jesus says, get these right, and then come and worship.
click the button. Second proper way to resolve anger. Uh, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. At least your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will, not, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. This is interesting. The first example was a religious practice, giving an offering. The second example has nothing to do with uh, going to the temple. <clears throat> so he's talking to people probably, he's trying, addressing the, the people in the crowd that they never go to church. They never go to uh, the temple and worship. So he's giving a non-religious example. Um, click the button. <laughs> the main point, how to resolve the anger, is agree quickly. Agree quickly. Resolve the conflict. All right? The relationship is what's important, not whether, whatever issue or thing you are arguing about. Let me give you a real <clears throat> uh, important tip here. This will change your life if you begin living by it, especially if you're married. All right? Are you all listening? We need more coffee. We need the women. The women are louder. <laughs> all right. Whenever you're in a, in a discussion an argument, <laughs> all right, and, and you find yourself, I said, or you said, but you said, but no, I actually said, and you said, I said, you said, no, I did not say, I said, no, you did not say, you said, listen, let me give you a hint. As soon as you hear that, bing, change the conversation. Because as long as you're talking about who said what, you're no longer talking about the issue. That is done. That's on the train on the way to Cincinnati. Now you're just fighting. Okay? So this is the trick. If you say, I, but I said, no, you said, just go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ah, please forgive me. Because whatever reason, that's what got communicated. Take responsibility. Agree quickly. Agree quickly. Agree quickly. Someone in a grudge with you, agree with them. Don't convince them that they're wrong and you're right. Because as long as you want to do that, you're wrong. So you can't convince them that you're right if you're wrong. So agree quickly. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Could you say it again? I don't know if I don't think of I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not understanding you. I said do that, do that. So you said do that, do that. Yes, it's exactly what I mean. And I, okay, let me, how would I do that? Or, I'm sorry if that's what, how, what I said, what I meant and what I feel. And that's a killer word right there, man. That brings it. What I feel is that I feel misunderstood. Now that's a big difference in, you don't understand me. You never understand me. You're not listening to me. As opposed to, I'm sorry if I said that because, you know, what's really happening in my heart is that I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I don't know if I understand myself. I don't know if I'm expressing what, I don't know how to express what I'm feeling in my heart. And you see the difference? How, you, how your response to those are totally different. You never listen to me. Causes your spouse, whoever you're talking with, to go, you want to bet? You never listen to me. You know, I can outdo that one. But if you go, I'm sorry, they go, please forgive me. They go, I don't feel, oh. 
and change your life, man. Apply it at work. Apply it at home. Apply it in every relationship. Stop trying to prove yourself right. Let God do that. And try to, try to prove the other person right. Help me understand this. Help me understand this from your point of view. Uh, but Jesus tells us that the best way to resolve anger is to talk it out, and that's what every psychologist and every book you read will say the same thing. Destructive ways to resolve anger is internalizing it. <laughs> um, and that's the worst. Uh, violent acts, that's the second worst. Everybody thinks that's the worst, but internalizing it is actually worse because it, it, it leads to depression, suicide, alcohol, uh, addictions, everything. Violent acts is bad, is bad, hurts people. Angry outbursts, yelling, shouting, name-calling, hurtful speech. Those are all bad ways of handling anger. <clears throat> a proper way to resolve anger is to express the emotion of anger verbally in appropriate, non-hurtful, non-condemning ways with the object of reconciliation, not proving who's right or wrong. That's the best way to resolve anger. So you say, I feel angry. If you feel angry, and, and this, is where, this is where most anger is unresolved because people don't confess their anger. Because they think, Jesus said, if, you, if I'm angry, I'm going to go to hell. And they forget the other verse that says, be angry. So the emotion of anger is proper, but you need the response. How do you have anger and not sin? You say, I feel anger. God, I'm angry about this. Hun honey, I feel anger. I feel anger inside because I said this and, and you did that and I don't understand. Help me through this. You know, I feel I feel angry. When you verbally verbalize anger, then you open up the door, you get it on the table, and that's how you can get it resolved. Jesus' advice 2,000 years ago is still agreed as the number one way. It's actually the only way to healthily uh, uh, resolve anger. <clears throat> So the kingdom of heaven, uh, morality, what Jesus is calling this transcends conforming uh, behavior, uh, the conforming behavior and demands just outward legalistic confirmation and calls us to have the inner motivations of our heart and our outer acts to be in harmony. All right? So our heart and our acts are in harmony. They're both following Jesus. Uh, we're called to live Christ-like inwardly and outwardly. Dan has some announcements. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor Cameron. Uh, quickly, somebody left that in the women's bathroom. Looks nice. If it's yours. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to grab my announcements. <clears throat>